Welcome, everyone. This is our very first strictly audio podcast, for we simply cannot afford to keep the lights on and also pay for filming as well. We shall endeavor, however, to make the audio as real as video. Herzl was born in Budapest in 1860, at the time that it was nicknamed Judapest because of its very large Jewish population. Little Theodore attended a Christian high school that allowed Jewish students to attend, and on his 13th birthday, in lieu of his bar mitzvah, his parents held a confirmation ceremony for their son. I realize that any Orthodox Jews listening to this broad podcast don't know what a confirmation is, and have probably never even heard of the term, as shocking as that may be to the rest of the audience. Conventional confirmation is a religious Christian ceremony sealing the Christianity created at baptism. Confirmation does not exist in Judaism other than in Reform Judaism, where it was adopted less than 200 years ago in lieu of a bar mitzvah, which even at that time was considered and deemed outmoded. Eventually, the confirmation for Reform Judaism was widened to include both boys and girls, and instead of being on Shabbat of the bar mitzvah, was shifted to the holiday of Shavuot. The Reform Confirmation Ceremony has no fixed ritual. Usually there's a sermon or two. It later evolved to encompass much pageantry, gowns, flowers, and cantatas. The Herzl family was very removed from their Judaism, and they subsequently relocated from Hungary to Vienna, where Herzl earned a law degree, but his passion was writing, and he became a playwright and a reporter for a prestigious Vienna Viennese newspaper. Herzl became obsessed with anti-Semitism, and he wanted and he desired for his children to grow up in a world that would be better than what he had experienced. I imagine that's the passion and the goal of every parent, so he certainly cannot be blamed for that. It was a noble goal. His first solution to the problem of anti-Semitism was that Jews should undergo baptism. When he becomes later assigned to be a reporter, that will change his perspective. He was assigned to Paris, and he is a bon vivant, and he enjoys culture, and he attends theater three times a week, until the end of 1894, when he sees the ugly face of anti-Semitism. Now, he was well aware of this because of the anti-Semitic party, which we talked about in Hungary, and he was a student in Vienna. He certainly encountered overt anti-Semitism, but this is his very first exposure to anti-Semitism in Paris. But since we already explained this, we shan't delve into it again. But that aha moment for Herzl was when after Dreyfus was convicted of being guilty of spying for Germany, the hundreds in the streets did not shout down with Dreyfus, but instead, le mort le juif, death to the Jews. And that becomes Herzl's aha moment. Herzl concludes that the only solution is for the Jews to have their own state. But how can you actualize such a fantastic idea? This is where being a playwright becomes so useful. He's going to have to set the stage. Herzl shuts himself down in his own apartment for the next five days, straight days, and he writes, and he writes, and he writes, and he writes. And what emerges is Der Judenstadt, the Jewish state book that he wrote. And we've already explained earlier how this fits so neatly into the concept of a blessing in disguise. Now, whereas in some circles the book was greeted with wild enthusiasm, religious Jews felt that the book was blasphemous to establish a state before the arrival of the Messiah. After the publication of the book, Herzl set about actualizing his words. 
he went off to see the Sultan of Turkey to negotiate buying the land of Palestine, or at least portions of the land of Palestine. This would cost a fortune. And he intended to underwrite his plan by getting all the wealthy Jews to give half of their ownings for this purpose. It was a fanciful dream. Nay, it was actually not even a wild hope, for the would-be benefactors had no interest in contributing. It's amazing how people who come up with these very noble ideas expect others to part readily with their hard-earned cash to underwrite it. So Herzl heads off to London in an effort to organize Jews there to support his program. Not all the Jewish leaders in England were happy to see him. They were about as happy to see him as Sweden was to, to welcome the bubonic plague. His political approach was not in tune with these wealthy Jews in London's approach. But at a public meeting in the East End, he was loudly cheered. As you remember, Herzl was tall, an impressive figure, with a long black beard and a mean of a prophet. Despite his personal magnetism, he found that his efforts to influence the, the appropriate and the important Jewish leaders in England were of little avail. And therefore, he decided to organize a World Congress of Zionists in the hope of winning support of the masses of Jews from all the countries. Where was he to hold this Congress? He selected Basel, Switzerland, because his original plan was Munich, Germany. Munich, of course, the capital of Bavaria. But the Jews of Bavaria were as interested in hosting a Zionist Congress as the hosts of a garden wedding are interested in rain, or as much as Captain Ahab would care to host Moby Dick. Living in the heartland of the so-called Enlightenment, the heartland of Reformed Judaism, they referred to themselves not as Jews, but of Germans of the faith of Moses. And they had zero interest in what they called the Jewish riffraff from all over the world coming to Munich. Their pride in referring to themselves as Germans and not as Jews would surely come home to roost some 30 years later with the rise of the Nazi party. But this did not dampen Herzl. And in 1897, he gathered Zionists for the First World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. Actually, I have an interesting story about Basel. There was a large, very, very large American presence of soldiers because of the Cold War in Germany until Drawdown, which happened in the mid-1990s. And I was invited to speak twice on behalf of American Jewish soldiers that were stationed in Germany. Every year, the American soldiers had a retreat on Thanksgiving. And like I said, for two years, I was invited to be their speaker. And uh, the retreat lasted for Thanksgiving. It started, I guess, Thursday evening and went through Sunday morning. I arrived Friday afternoon on a flight from Tel Aviv to Frankfurt. And it was held in a retreat in what was once a Jewish property north of Frankfurt. I got there Friday afternoon and I was anxious to do my job which was more than just speaking as I understood it. It was also to mix with the soldiers and their families. These soldiers were not, as you imagine, troops in the trenches. They were from JAG, Judge Advocate General. They were dentists. They were having Uncle Sam pay for their education by signing up with the army. So I went to speak with them, to mix with them, and where possible to offer them some kind of rabbinical uh, advice. And as soon as I arrived, I took all my things out of my pockets, my change. Things would certainly not be appropriate for Shabbat. My change, my, any money, my passport, the things in my pockets, I put them in my bag, and then I went out to mix with the soldiers. It was a very interesting weekend. 
And uh, there was a fellow who subsequently became a lifelong friend of mine, a fellow from Switzerland who drove in all the way from Zurich because he wanted to be in this opportunity to be with soldiers, Jews who didn't have strong Jewish affiliation. And he told me on Sunday morning, because on Sunday, again, I was in Frankfurt, and on Sunday I was traveling to Zurich to speak to the Jewish community in Zurich. So he told me that all BD's from Zurich, and he's driving back to Zurich. He'd love to give me a ride, but he has no room in his car. However, he'd be happy to take a bag to make my journey a little more easy. And I said, happily. So I gave him my bag. I also had a box of books that was too much to fit into a small car with his family. No sooner does he take off and ay ay ay. I realized that in that bag which I had given him was also my passport. And how am I going to get from Germany to Switzerland without a passport? If any of you are familiar with the story of what happened in World War II when Jews desperately needed a haven and a harbor, Switzerland showed how hospitable they are and they hermetically sealed their borders. Things hadn't really changed all that much. Now, albeit today we look at Europe as one large union, and it's not hard to travel from one country to another. That was not the case in the early 1990s. And, of course, this is at least a decade before cell phones. So how am I going to contact this person? He's driving to uh, Switzerland, and I don't have my passport. How do I notify him? I need to have my passport. But, hey, I have the American Army. And there was a full bird colonel there. So I tell them my problem, and they're so happy to help me. They call up the American ambassador himself, not even the American consulate, the ambassador. And this is what he said, as it was reported to me. He said, if I would have lost my passport, he, the ambassador, would go down to the American embassy Sunday morning in his pajamas and issue me a new passport. However, my passport wasn't lost. I know where it is. I'm going to have to wait till Sunday or Monday till it arrives in Switzerland, then have it FedEx back to Germany, and then I'll be able to travel to Switzerland. But if I attempt to travel without a passport, I will be arrested by the German police on the border and spend the night in a German jail. Gosh. But I was really determined. People were waiting for me in Zurich. So I said to them, let me speak to the ambassador. So the way it was in those days, it was, you know, you had like a phone booth in this retreat. So it was a separate room. I closed the door and he said to me the same thing he told these officers. I said, okay, okay, okay. I sealed the door. I hung up the phone. I thanked him. And I said to the officers, he said, it's okay, I can travel. Gulp. Why did I say that? But I thought what was indicated was I needed a lot of special spiritual assistance. And my plan was that instead of leaving from Frankfurt to go to Zurich by train, I would go to Worms. Because in Worms, there is a, where the Marami Rutenberg is buried, another great rabbinical giants, Rashi's synagogue is there. And I wanted that extra spiritual assistance. So I went there and I prayed and I got onto the train. Now, these German trains, international trains, each car is like a train. Each car is like a skinny football field, 250 people in a car. And I looked very distinctly Jewish, and it was really not so easy. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to get over the border from Germany to Switzerland without a passport? And, you know, if you ever had these thoughts, I certainly did. Why didn't the Jews hide here or hide there in Germany? and avoid all the problems. I'm thinking I'll hide in the bathroom, I'll hide under the seats. There was nowhere, nowhere to hide. Anyways, so the train, need I I say that the German train was precise and on time. And at the time it was supposed to reach before the border, precise at that time we were getting there. And soldiers get onto the train 
and they have these uh, Swiss buttons that look like red crosses, and uh, they have pistols in their holsters. And so Officer gets on, he says, everyone, he must have their passports. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So my strategy was, is that since I was born in Europe, and I know a little bit European mentality, I know that Europeans cannot tolerate a loud American. So I was going to be obnoxious, and my plan was, if I'm obnoxious, he'll sort of leave me alone. And my biggest problem was, is that I had nothing. I did Not only did I not have a passport, I had my wallet. Everything was in that bag. All I had on me to identify myself were two pieces of paper. One wasn't even for me. For some reason, I don't know why. I had a fax that was sent to Chaplain Seidman, Ellie Seidman, who was in charge of this whole retreat. And there was a letter a student had written me that was also my pocket, an aerogram that was written to me. And with that, I can't even get a library card with this kind of identification, but that's how I'm going to get myself into Switzerland. So finally, they come over to me and they say, passports. And I said, I don't have a passport. He said, you don't have a passport with total incredulity? And the whole train, 250 people got up and there was a huddle all around, which goes to prove that one man's tragedy is another man's tourist attraction. And everyone's watching this. And then with great drama, I uh, say, but of course I have identification. He said, oh, let me see your identification. And with a trademark flourish of excellence, not unlike the five stars, the five star chef's quick kiss of his own fingertips as he presents his gourmet masterpiece, or the magician's hand making a French curl in the air as he directs our attention to his vanished assistant, I proudly pulled out the letter from my pocket and I hand it to this Swiss official. He says, you're Chaplain Seidman. Yikes. I had only two things. How could I mess up? And I gave him the wrong paper. I said, no, 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 I'm sorry. And again, with that great trademark flourish, I hand him the letter written from a student to me. And he reads and he says, you are Rabbi Hanach Teller. I said, that is true. And he said, Rabbi, what are you going to do in Switzerland? And I have no idea why I said this, but this is what I said, honest and true. I said, why? I'm going to rabbinate. He said, you're going to rabbinate? And you should have seen 250 people looking like I had just fallen off the moon. You're going to rabbinate? I said, of course. Where are you going to rabbinate? I'm going to rabbinate everywhere. This was getting so trippy. It was deeply weird. And he said, then what do you have in that box? Do you have spirits? I had such a good answer, but I decided I really have to behave myself. I said, no, it's just books. And then he went on. And I'm thinking, I'm doomed. He's going to surely, you know, notify the police. And then when I get to the border, I'm a cooked goose. But we keep on traveling. And I was doing the most spiritual things I could even think, ever think of. I was reciting Psalms and I was being a good boy. And I was pledging. It's like that, you know, it was a super foxhole experience. Everyone knows whose wife has given birth, the way you're feeling in the delivery room, pledging everything to the Almighty, just the baby should come out healthy and your wife should be all right. And I'm doing everything I possibly can. And we're chugga, 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 chugga. Finally, finally, I look up what should have been the time of the border and I see out the window, Basel. Basel, we made it to Switzerland. I turned to the young lady across from me and I said to her in my halting German, Wie lang waren Sie in die Schweiz? And she responded to me words I shall never forget. Nein, das ist der deutsche Basel. 
the Schweizer Basel in the next station. Meaning that we're not in Switzerland. We're in German Basel. Go over the border, we'll be in Swiss, Swiss Basel. And then, I don't really have dramatic ending to the story, but we just rolled over the border and they didn't do anything. My only explanation, and no one that night in Zurich believed me when I told the story, my only explanation is the guy was so freaked out by the fact a guy came without a passport. He just didn't know how to cope with it. In any event, we made it to Basel, made it into Zurich, and that night I spoke, I was planned. Back to our story. The Congress met in Basel at the end of August 1897, attended by about 200 delegates, mostly from Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, along with a few from Western Europe and even from the United States. They represented, represented all social strata and every variety of Jewish thought, from Orthodox Jews to atheists, from businessmen to students. There were several hundred onlookers, including some sympathetic Christians, and reporters for the international press. And that atmosphere in the Congress in Basel, again, late December 1897, it was electric. Behind the podium hung a white flag appearing like a talus with two blue stripes and a star of David in the middle. Of course, this is going to be the forerunner of the flag of Israel. And that blue and white becomes very, very significantly and uniquely enigmatic. Pardon me. It becomes, the, it becomes very typical uh, of Israel. The expression in Israel is kachol v'lavan, blue and white, means made in Israel. If it's blue and white, it's Israeli. And according to an especially beautiful film presented by the CBN, and really, really hats off to Gordon Robertson for this splendiferous effort, at that conference was also a Christian Zionist named Reverend William Heckler, who was the British Embassy's chaplain in Vienna, who helped Herzl make some important political connections, and who became lifelong friends. Herzl even wrote to Heckler the day before he died. When Herzl's imposing figure came to the podium, there was a tumultuous applause. People cheered and stomped their feet as he announced, quote, We want to lay the foundation stone for the house which will become the refuge of the Jewish nation. Zionism is the return to Judaism, even before the return to the land of Israel. The applause was deafening. Picture the rock star of APAC as Nikki Haley walks to the podium, as everyone is cheering and whistling and applauding, and Herzl goes to the podium. Our next guest hardly needs an introduction. During her two years as the American ambassador to the United States of America at the United Nations, Nikki Haley proved herself, yes, Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.